This is the Adventure Sports Podcast, brought to you by 180TAC. Get out there and have some fun. Episode 264, Anna Marie Watson, Ultra Running, Biking, and Coaching. Hey friends, Kurt here. You know, tonight I was watching the documentary by Leon Logothetis, The Kindness Diaries. Leon was kind enough to be on the Adventure Sports Podcast a couple of times. And uh, if you haven't heard already, what Leon has done is he took a yellow motorcycle with a sidecar and he traveled all the way around the planet, depending totally on the kindness of strangers. He would not accept money but he did allow people to feed him, give him a place to sleep, and to fill his motorcycle tank with gas. And in so doing, he not only made it all the way around the planet on the kindness of strangers, he also made amazing connections along the way, learned so much about humanity and the way that this world really works. But what's really fun about this is when someone was generous with him and he found a special need, then he would give back in amazing ways, whether it was building a library and giving fresh water to an orphanage in India or building a house for a lady and her son who are living in a shanty or a a number of other things. He would find ways that he could give back and reward the kindness of strangers. I bring this up just because we were watching his documentary tonight on Netflix, and it was so much fun to see um, what he had shared with me you know, on the Adventure Sports Podcast. And I was touched. I, I have to say, it's it's amazing show. You should watch The Kindness Diaries. You can read his book, The Kindness Diaries. You can also go back and see the shows on the Adventure Sports Podcast, The Kindness Diaries. It's just kind of fun to uh, remember some of the guests that we've had on the show. And Leon has been a wonderful guest. So maybe go back and listen to those. Uh, one other thing. Please remember that we do have a membership site now. You can join as a member of the Adventure Sports Podcast. And in return, we say thank you by offering you discounts that many of our friends that we've met through the program are offering to you. Discounts off of amazing things, uh, trips, outdoors gear, backpacking food, energy bars, motorcycle gear, you name it, there are a lot of, of opportunities, lots of different types of uh, things that you might want to build a vacation around on the site. You can save hundreds of dollars. We'd really appreciate it if you would help support the Adventure Sports Podcast by becoming a part of the Adventure Sports Podcast members discount site. To get there, all you have to do is go to our website and click the blue button on the right that says Members Deals. Thank you very much in advance, and now on with the show. Hello and welcome to the Adventure Sports Podcast. This is your host, Kurt Linville. Today I have an ultra athlete, Anna Marie Watson, with us, and she has done so many adventurous and amazing things all around the planet. I'm really excited to hear not just her stories about all of the accomplishments that she has, but also I'm excited to hear about how she can encourage other people to get more active and be involved Um, She is a coach. She spent nine years in the British military where she had several tours that took her around the planet. 
She has completed the marathon to Saab, and not only completed, but came in as second female, which is amazing. She also has completed eight half Ironmans and has competed at the world level for that. Um, she is currently training for the Ultra Trail de Mont Blanc, which is an ultra race around Mont Blanc, which is going to be a lot of fun to talk about. And she has her coaching business that we have to talk about. So much to cover. Really excited to have you with us, Anna Marie. Hi, Kurt. Thanks so much for having me on the show today. Oh, you bet. It's our pleasure. Certainly our pleasure. Well, let's start with a backstory. Anna Marie, where did you grow up and how did you get into this crazy world of ultra sports? <laughs> um, I grew up actually in the north of England, in the in the northeast, uh, pretty much near the Scottish border. Um, in a place called Newcastle and I kind of appreciate that a lot of Americans might not know where that is. I actually remember visiting America, it must have been when I was a teenager, and trying to um, make a call home and I was speaking to the lady um, kind of trying to get the dial code basically back to England and just completely she it was not on her globe, not on her radar, which right. I clearly found quite confusing. But that's England, you know, England, kind of England, United Kingdom, Europe. And no, she she, she was just beyond her. I, I think I gave <laughs> up in the end, to be honest. But yeah, England is kind of quite a small place when you take um, the size of America into perspective. And it does amaze me sometimes where I meet um, Americans and they're kind of traveling and they've literally had to get their passport for like the first time um, right. because you guys have so much to explore just within your continent. Whereas, I, I mean, I was I was really lucky. Um, my first trip overseas was when I was, I think I was three months old and my parents took me to Norway. Um, I have to highlight at this point, as a child, I was six six weeks premature. Um, so when I was kind of three months old, my parents took me off to Norway. And there's this picture of me on a glacier in a plastic bag. Um, so I think that probably <laughs> says quite a lot about my upbringing um, and how I can attribute or blame um, my parents for um, definitely a, a lot um, growing up. But no, I was, I was very lucky. And um, my, my parents... Um, even though kind of growing up in the northeast um and a lot of people do have kind of have preconceptions within the uk of like the north south divide and um the, the opportunity to travel you know back in the the 80s when i was growing up was a lot less than it is now you know this was kind of pre easy jet um which is you know the cheap flights where you can basically hop on and disappear off to various places in europe for the weekend sure. there was absolutely none of that at all um but my parents were very much into kind of travel and holidays. And that was like the big thing. And, you know, everyone spends money on different things, whether it's like, you know, a nice house or a nice car or travel. And my parents were definitely in the travel camp, it has to be said. Oh, that sounds wonderful. So you were raised by adventurous parents who introduced you to this whole world. Then you joined the military and you got to do a lot of crazy stuff there. What was that like? Yeah, the military. I've got I've got a lot to thank for the military. I mean, I left school. I did not have a clue what I wanted to do. Um, but I was very much into the outdoors. I'd been at cadets at school as well. Um, and I was fortunate to be actually sponsored through university um, by the Royal Logistics Corps. So I knew that I had a place at Sandhurst, which is the British um, Officer Training College, which you go to for a year. Um, and when I left that, I commissioned at the top 
Um, so I've kind of had a choice of my postings and um, I was really lucky to go to um, a unit which did a lot of training with the Marines. So my first job literally straight from training was going to Norway and doing Arctic warfare training. So it's all that good, um, I don't know, cutting holes in the ice and jumping in the ice um, and digging snow holes and going out on patrol with your kind of in your white cams, pulling your polk um and kind of learning how to cross-country ski because even though i downhill skied i'd never cross-country skied right. and they have these massive big skis like i'm i'm in ti- i'm tiny and i'm at, i'm a midget and um, standing at um like five foot nothing basically and they had two <laughs> sizes of skis made out of wood which they were massive or like massive so i don't know i have these kind of images of me kind of tiny with this big rucksack that's a big bergen that was just just as big as me kind of pulling this polk which is basically like a sledge that attaches around your waist with these massive big wooden skis and oh and, and with my soldiers as well a lot of them were learning to ski for the first time as well um, and their coordination at times was um limited and i just have visions of them kind of like skiing off randomly into trees and you know when you're in really deep snow and you can't quite push yourself back up and you're a little bit like a an upside down turtle so to speak just completely floundering um but i mean as a first posting that was absolutely um absolutely amazing and i you know i learned a lot you know as a young 21 year old out there with a troop of 25 guys um i was the only female within um my unit which you know in itself is um, an interesting challenge to kind of overcome but you know I was very much adopted by my my sergeants and they took me under their wing and I was known as mini mom kind of another reference back <laughs> to my my height it has to be said. With that kind of an introduction to cross-country skiing did you hate it or did you learn to love it? Um, there's, there's very much a difference cross-country skiing with a bergen and a polk to cross-country skiing <laughs> right. um, and I have to say since then I've more favor the downhill side of things um i'm yeah i'm very lucky um my family has an apartment in the french alps um so christmas and new years have very much been kind of spent out there on the slopes and it's it's kind of like the one place that we kind of get together as a family you know growing up in newcastle um and then we've had this apartment since 2000 and it was okay so where do i want to spend my leave from the military i can go back to newcastle um, or I can go to the French Alps. Hmm, difficult choice. I think it'll be the French Alps. Thank you very much. Well, they both sound wonderful to me, you know. <laughs> so you were in the British military in the army for nine years. And yeah, after no. that, then what happened? So I spent nine years. I had a range of jobs. I kind of, I did do three operational tours to an Iraq and one in Afghanistan. And... I got to the nine-year point, and it would have been so easy to stay. I basically had a commission, and I could have stayed until I was fifty-five. And I kind of, I thoroughly enjoyed it. And I was, I was literally, I was about to hit thirty, and I was like, "It's the easy option to stay." And I've never really been one to take the easy option. Um, and the potential was, I probably would have had to go on tour again. I also was about to potentially promote to major, which means you basically go and do an eight-month leadership course and it's very much based on infantry doctrine and tactics and strategy which I had absolutely no interest in whatsoever Mm. um so I thought actually it's time to go I still I still really didn't have a clue what I wanted to do um 
And for part of that, you know, I'd been very much living within an institution, you know, school, university, the army. And I just I just want to get away. So I kind of gave myself a year off. Um, it was a little bit indulgent. I had by this point, I got my mountain leader qualifications. So, you know, I can't take groups um, away. So I lined up, you know, a couple of expeditions within that year because the thought is really, you know, drifting around the world and not having a focus or not having a challenge into PR. I wanted to give it a bit of structure um, and just make just make it kind of a, just kind of see the place. I didn't want to just kind of end up doing the whole, I don't know, drinking, having just left school, 18. Um, I don't think you really get a feel of the country that way. Um so I'd actually been to um, the Kendall Mountain Film Festival, which is up in the Lake District. And there was a guy called Mark Beaumont um, doing a talk there who had basically cycled around the world. And I was just like, wow, that is amazing. Cycling around the world. It's like, if he can cycle down the world, I'm sure I can cycle across something or down something or, or something. So this kind of, I, was, I then went to Kenya with the military and I was taking, um, guiding basically up Mount Kenya. Um, and during that time, the plan kind of formulated. It's like, right, okay, I've never been to New Zealand. Um, let's let's go to New Zealand. Okay, what am I going to do in New Zealand? But I don't want to take a bus and just kind of travel down the country. That's, you know, that's just a bit boring, kind of being sat all day. And I'll just end up basically drinking in youth hostels and meeting people. And no, it needs to be more of a challenge. I want to kind of meet local people. Um, so it's like, I could cycle down New Zealand. And kind of have to remember that at this point, my cycling career was, I didn't, I think I owned a bike that I'd maybe had when I was a teenager that was still sat in the garage. Right. Um, the whole concept of getting a bike, getting the panniers, you know, buying a tent to do it just like literally. So I remember, I think it was Googling kind of getting how to hire a bike in Auckland to then drop it off at the other end of New Zealand. Um, and I put the measurements in and and to me, I, co- I put completely the wrong measurements in. This is kind of linking back to that. I'm a bit of a small midget. And the measurements <laughs> that I put in was actually for like a massive, really tall person. So I then disappeared off into the outback in, in Kenya because I was taking people up and down my Kenya and internet connection. Clearly, there isn't any. So I kind of came back to an email from my mate um, in back in Newcastle. She's like, I had an email from a bike shop because I'd put her down as a con- point of contact while I was away. I've had an email from this guy just kind of double checking these measurements because he either thinks that you've got them wrong or you're like an absolute giant. I was like, ah, okay. So luckily, I mean, I could have rocked up and had this bike that would have just been completely the wrong size and just wouldn't have worked. And it was basically being shipped from one end of the country to the other. Um, so thankfully that didn't quite happen. But even so, I remember going and picking the bike up from this bike shop in Auckland and I had to kind of psych myself up outside the bike shop because I I, I didn't even know how to change a tire at that point. Mm. But I didn't want to look like a total novice because they would have just thought I was completely stupid thinking that I could cycle basically down New Zealand. So it was kind of this bit of active bravado. Yeah, I know what I'm doing. Right. (laughs) No, not in the slightest. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I had a parallel experience when I recently... Uh, rented a, a large uh, street motorcycle, and I've spent many, many years motorcycling on the dirt. But to be on a, a large street bike was kind of new to me. And so when I, I rented the bike, I had to do the same thing, just kind of, well, uh, yeah, I know what this is. Where's first? <laughs> is that the clutch? Mm. 
<laughs> Ooh, <laughs> so, okay. <laughs> I, I kind of get what you're coming from or where you're coming from there. But what a, an amazing thing to do. So you, you leave the military and you say, I'm just going to bike the length of New Zealand. And it's just a way to experience life on a whole different level. So what did that do for you? Yeah, it, it was. It was a total, it was kind of the beginning of the transition. And, you know, leaving the military, and I look back now, I've been out for seven years. And, you know, I've, I've changed a lot since then. And I've achieved a lot since then. But this was, this was like the starting point, And I, I really didn't have a clue what I wanted to do. And I was also kind of, I just hit 30 as well. And I was quite conscious that within, I don't know, the Western society, my perception was, you know, as a female hitting 30, ooh, it's a bit of a, I don't know, a bit of a landmark. And a lot of my friends, you know, were getting married, having kids. And I was basically leaving my um, permanent job, um, leaving my boyfriend, loose boyfriend term of the time, and basically disappearing to the other side of the planet. So I was kind of this is a bit, this isn't the norm. I'm a little bit unusual. I'm not quite sure what I'm going to do when I come back. Um, and it kind of even linked to, you know, my, my, my brother, who's three years younger than me, he was very much doing the kind of the very sensible, getting, settling down, buying a house in Jersey, stable job within the kind of the corporate finance world. And then there was me kind of going, okay, I've been in the army for nine years. And now what? Um, I don't know, but I've got some money saved up and I'm going traveling um, and I'm going to go and cycle. Yeah. So okay. you did this cycling in New Zealand. <laughs> was that um, solo by yourself? Yeah, yeah. So this is by myself. Um, I had, I kind of, because I've been really lucky to kind of live and work in various parts of the world, I do kind of have contacts all over the world. So I kind of, there was a girl I knew from school who lived in Auckland. So I kind of went and crashed at hers. And there was a guy I did, um, I met during the Everest Marathon who lived um out on North Island. So I kind of, I was like, oh, I can pass through there. I can crash for the night. I can pass through there. It saves me camping for a night. But other than that, it was just me. And the route was a little bit, well, I'll just kind of head south. Um, I had this road map, which, yeah, the road map was, it, it, well, I just kind of like headed for the next town. It was all, it, I mean, there wasn't really much of a plan, to be honest. Um, it sounds perfect. I, can... <laughs> I love it. <laughs> Um, and yeah, you know, I kind of knew I wanted to go and like see the hot springs and I want to go to Marlborough and drink the, you know, the Sauvignon Blanc. So there was kind of certain things I kind of had kind of ticked off in my mind. But, you know, a lot of the time I was just kind of camping in the local campsites. And, you know, I remember one morning waking up and it was one of those mornings where it literally had rained all night. And you've got that prospect of taking down a wet tent, which is always just a little bit of crap. Um, and I must have been looking a bit sorry for myself because the people next door had a big camper van and they invited me in for kind of bacon sandwiches and cups of tea. And, you know, <laughs> I got chatting to them about their life, which that's kind of what it's all about. I didn't really want to be in a youth hostel with a bunch of people who were probably, you know, kind of eight years younger than me who just left, just left school. I kind of wanted to get out and about and meet other people. And I remember meeting one guy, um, I, I, I literally cycled the entire time on my for the entire trip, other than one day. So I met I met I met this guy who he was going to a wedding, and he just basically decided to rather than drive there, and it was going to take him a good week to cycle to this wedding. Um, so I kind of bumped to him to him on the trail, and we were going through this. I can't remember what the name of the place is now, but there's basically this massive big canyon, and it's got a flying fox over it. You know, one of the 
kind of the rope aerial runway rope aerial rope things okay um and we were like oh that looks really really cool but i should go and check it out go and check it out and then really randomly this is just the way the world works he was actually at school with the guy who was running it so the guy was like oh do you want to have a go we're like yeah brilliant so you know you you kind of randomly bump into a guy who knows the guy the, who the manager and then you get a free go on the flying fro- fox <laughs> yeah thanks very much so that was that was really great and then we set off and we kind of earmarked this like basically this one um rest stop um which we're like okay we know there's a store there we can get food so we kind of set off and we got there and it was i remember in the window there was a little note kind of going um sorry we're closed for the for the night and we've gone to visit family in the next town and we're like well we can't get to the next town because it's another you know 20 miles down the road um looks like we're camping by the side of the road tonight okay what food have you got so literally we were like pulling i think i had like an emergency can of beans or something and he (laughs) had i know some like snickers bar or something and i had a tea bag like right okay that's dinner and breakfast combined okay brilliant well isn't that just the fun of it though when you when you take off and you experience something new and you get you get to that awkward moment where things aren't quite right but you make the best of the situation and that's where the memories come from Mm, that's the thing you just you just don't know and i remember then the next morning we got up and we cycled that 20 miles to the next place and there was a like a, a fish bait stop sh- um, shop there that did these kind of like fritters of of fish, and I remember having one of those in a sandwich, and it was just like the best thing ever. <laughs> um, but if we hadn't been through that experience together, and then kind of stumbled across this little fish shop which did these most amazing kind of fresh fish sandwich things, um, you just yeah, you just don't know what is going to be around the next corner sometimes. Sure. Well, I'd like to highlight a couple of things for you to comment on. One of the things that you said early on is that you were surprised to see so many Americans who are getting a passport for the first time. Because there's so much travel that can be done within the U.S., not everybody leaves, right? That was one Mm. point. Another point is that you decided to try something new and New Zealand sounded good and you decided you should cycle because that sounded good even though you didn't have the experience or the training necessarily. And you decided to do it as a female, and I have to point out, as not a big female, a five-foot female, <laughs> right, alone. So the reason I point all of that out is because I want our listeners to hear from you what it's like to be a, a lady who says, I'm going to go travel alone, and I'm going to try something new alone that I've never done before, and uh, maybe encourage them to be a little bit more adventurous, too. Mm. And... I don't know, there is the kind of that balance of kind of being sensible because as a female, there, there are kind of, you don't want to put yourself in situations where you, you can have to kind of get a bit of a balance sometimes. And I know for me in my head, New Zealand was, and it's all a matter of perception, to be honest, New Zealand was safe, you know, they, they speak English. Um, I don't have to kind of go through the whole translation thing. Um, I think at that point, the decision of, you know, maybe like cycling to Southeast Asia, for example, that probably would have been a step too far for me. So this was, it was a challenge, but it was within the parameters that I was comfortable with. Um, and I think sometimes it's having a bit of a self-awareness of kind of what your kind of abilities are at a certain extent. So you're not putting yourself in danger. And 
I'm kind of coming at this very much from like my mountain leader head where, you know, within the UK, you do kind of get some people heading off into the wilds and they haven't like prepared at all. They haven't got any like first aid kit or waterproofs or like anything. And then they kind of get themselves in danger. And then ultimately the people who have to come and rescue them put themselves in danger as well. So I do very much support people kind of getting out there and having your adventure. But there is also a kind of, you know, do kind of be sensible to a point um, not that I'm really one if I want to say having just talked about my kind of New Zealand adventure um, but the, the, there is kind of a fine line um, and you know I always encourage people when they're kind of you know if you're going out and you're going to be doing something you know let somebody kind of know where you're going or when you're kind of going to be coming back um, just so the safety side of things is kind of taken into consideration so I'm kind of putting like a little caveat there um, but that's not an excuse by any means to kind of not go out and do stuff. Founded and operated in Colorado, Catabatic Gear is driven by the premise that ultralight backpacking equipment should be made lighter through innovative design and advanced materials, not by simply stripping components. With intuitive features and the best, most advanced materials, Catabatic Gear's sleeping bags, backpacks, and accessories strike the perfect balance between ultralight weights and ultimate comfort that will change the way you think about backpacking. If you are considering lightening the load on your next backpacking trip, check out some of their award-winning gear at catabaticgear.com. That's K-A-T-A-B-A-T-I-C gear.com. Bentgate Mountaineering, located in Golden, Colorado, has been outfitting backcountry travelers for the last 20 years. Spring has sprung, but there's still a lot of great skiing in the backcountry, and it's prime time to check out the latest in alpine touring, telemark, NTN, and split boarding gear. Bentgate carries the premier brands, including Black Crows, DPS, Dinafit, G3, Icelandic, K2, Rocky Mountain Underground, Rosignol, Solomon, Voli, Never Summer, and Jones. With more people in the backcountry than ever, it's crucial to be prepared. Bentgate has the latest in avalanche safety gear from beacons to airbags. Come in and they will set you up with the proper gear and point you in the right direction to educate yourself on snow safety. If you don't own the gear, Bentgate offers a full range of rental and demo equipment, including the latest skis, boots, split boards, beacons, shovels, and probes. Bentgate also hosts free demo ski days at local resorts to give you a hands-on opportunity to ride the latest gear. Be sure to check bentgate.com for their full product selection as well as updates on all of their events. I think it's wonderful when people take that step. And I have to point out, I think that all of your years in the military and having been around the planet and been in all sorts of different challenging situations in many different cultures probably gave you the experience and, and some courage, right? I guess the point I'm trying to make just is that I think people should chase their dreams and not allow their fears to get in the way. And you're an example oh. of how that can be done. It's very much so very much so it's kind of like it's setting yourself up and just sitting on the couch I don't know day in day out and kind of going through your routine which people kind of do get into habits um 
and you know weeks go by months go by years go by and I don't know sometimes nothing really happens um so it's kind of okay so what is that dream and even if it's just doing something like little different that little things and little things consistently over time come to big things um and I know that I kind of look at what I've some of the adventures that I've been on and some of the races that I've done you know it didn't happen overnight um you know very much I can attribute it back to my kind of my childhood um but it's also the mentality that I have now and it's the decisions that I make you know it's an active decision you know even for example this morning um I had a training session to do the weather wasn't that great um it was kind of three hours out on the trail um it would have been so easy to just kind of sit on the couch and do some work but I was like no get out there and do that and once you kind of get out there you know you always come back enjoying it you kind of you know you get the endorphins and um you come back and you're like yeah that was a good session I'm so glad that I do that so you know I definitely challenge um any of your listeners to kind of just do something different if you've had that kind of little niggle in the back of your mind that oh maybe I could do this or well, I heard that so-and-so did this and maybe I could have a go or oh I watched that show and that person was doing blah 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 and it looked really cool well kind of go and do it oh yeah I agree completely so Anna Marie let's talk a little bit more about some of the things that you've done since then you've done so many ultra races and you know if you would like to list a few I'll just let you list them off because I don't have them all <laughs> written down here but we talked about your your half Ironmans which are also known as uh, what do you a 70.2 70.3s right 70.3s of the marathon de Saab, which is amazing that's like doing a marathon a day through the desert for 7 days so tell us about all of this this is quite the <laughs> portfolio Mm. And I, I do, I'm a little bit unusual because a lot of the time trail runners are kind of like trail runners and they're pure trail runners. That's all they do. Um, whereas I kind of do dip into the whole triathlon world, but also adventure racing as well. So I'll kind of start off with some of the running that I've done first because running has kind of been my constant. Um, and, you know, very much I started, I had never done a marathon until 2004. Um, it wasn't, I just kind of like jumped in overnight and did like a hundred miler. I very much kind of built up getting, you know, the London Marathon, the Edinburgh Marathon. Then I was like, oh, I'll go and do the Everest Marathon. That sounds cool. Um, I did the, my first ultra was the Dead Sea Ultra. And with this, I kind of justified it that it was 50 kilometers because, you know, an ultra is anything over 50 kilometers. So, you know, it was, I knew I could do a marathon. And the thing is with the Dead Sea Ultra as well is that it's all downhill. Mm. Um so you start in a mam um, in Jordan, then finish up by the Dead Sea. And I kind of thought it was quite cool to finish by the Dead Sea. And um, I'd, I was actually working in Abu Dhabi at the time. And we, I went over with a group of friends. And we booked ourselves into the Kapinski for the night. You know, very nice hotel for one night. Totally treat yourself. And then I was like, then I can go and float in the Dead Sea. How cool is that? So in a way, a lot of my races are kind of a bit of an excuse to travel, to be honest. And I kind of, you know, it's with friends. Um, I get to see the world. Um, so that's kind of what it's all about. So that was my first ultra. Um, and then I did the CCC, which is the Kumaya Champex Chamonix, which links into the Ultra Tour de Mont Blanc, which you mentioned during the introduction. Um, so that was like a 98-kilometer one with 6,000 meters of ascent in 24 hours. And that was a tough one. That was kind of standing at the start line there. I was not 100% convinced I was going to get all the way around. I was going to give it my best shot, um, but it was definitely the toughest race that I'd done at that time. Um, and 
a lot of people kind of dropped out on the day. Um, and that is, is with some of the ultra runners, actually the kind of the attrition rate um, can be kind of quite high because they, they are they are tough. They are a challenge. Oh, yeah. um, so that's within Europe. Then I, I lived in Sydney for a while. I did the, um, the North Face 100 in the Blue Mountains, um, which you know, the, um, the Three Sisters there is a, an amazing um, landmark. I remember there's a ladder that goes off the back. So I think you'd kind of maybe done about, I don't know, 70 kilometers then you have to kind of climb down this really really steep ladder and it's for me the timings wise it was beginning to get dark um, and I always find that time when you're kind of ultra running when it kind of when it kind of goes from day to night or night to day it's I find it an absolutely magical part um of of the day the way that kind of like the light fades or the kind of the light kind of comes up and particularly if you get a sunset as well that can be absolutely beautiful um so that was in sydney and then i did one last year i've done i've done a few multi-days as well kind of within the uk and they're kind of they're a bit different the whole kind of the way that multi-days are constructed around kind of the the one day you know you're out for i know 100 miles um, or 100k so my first 100 miles was actually back up in newcastle um it kind of came down the coastline um of the northeast which it's a beautiful part of the country um, and you're running along all the beaches and there's a lot of castles as well in the northeast um and just for some of your american listeners um you know between the border between england and scotland kind of going back to medieval times there was a lot of castles built so you're kind of running past these you know tumble down castles um which is i don't know it just adds that kind of additional historic cultural element to the race um so that was um that was a tough race um, particularly at night and it wasn't particularly well marked, um, and it was quite boggy. Um, so I was very, <laughs> I, was, I was pleased to finish that after kind of wading through all this mud. Um, and my most recent one was in Turkey, actually in central Turkey. Uh, last year, I was sponsored by the Ultra Trail World Tour, um, who are an organisation, um, and they they have like a lot of the big name um, ultra ultra races, um, a bit like you know Western States and the Marathon Sabre and the UTMB. But they also have future series races as well, which are in kind of slightly more unusual places, and they're trying to promote them. Um, so I was fortunate to be sponsored to go out there um, to Cappadocia, which has this most amazing um, rock formations. They're called fairy chimneys. And going back in time, a lot of people used to live in the rocks and well, um, live in caves as well. So there's all these kind of houses and windows and doors that have been hollowed out of the um, the rocks there. And it's 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 a really very beautiful place. The next morning we we ended up in a um, a balloon ride as well, and you could kind of see the route of where the race had gone, kind of sneaking along um, this most amazing kind of escarpment. Um, so, yeah, very, really beautiful. If anyone's kind of in Turkey or looking for like a, a little, a different race, the, the Cappadocia, and they've also got kind of a 60K version and a 30K version as well, which I do kind of quite like with races when they kind of have like a different series. So if you're doing it with friends as well, you know, I can always go along and do like the stupid long one. And then my friends um, who might just be getting into races can do like the shorter versions. Well, I, I'm so amazed at not only all the things that you've done, but the way that you incorporate these races into the concept of travel and the scenery and in the experience. So for you, it's not about the distance um, and you're very competitive, but it sounds like it's, it's more about the overall experience than it is about winning and losing even. Mm, yeah, definitely. Um, and, and 
even doing some of um, like my triathlon races, for example, um, we did one um, one of the Ironman 70.3s in Aix-en-Provence down in the south of France. And I came back and I was talking to my husband. He races as well. And I was just like, oh, wow, did you see the views? They were absolutely stunning. And he was like, what views? I was like, no, 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 no. He goes, when you're racing, you should be looking at the tarmac in front of you. I'm like, no. No, 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 we're gonna we're gonna have to differ on this one. I'm afraid. Um, <laughs> I love and... it though. Yeah, I love the idea that it can be about the overall experience and about what you see along the way, and and that makes it even more appealing. Um, mm. What advice do you have for people who are like, I, I I love this concept, but I don't know how to start. I don't know how to get started running, much less running marathons and ultras. I mean, it's it's kind of a gradual process, and I always kind of link it back to that if you don't know where to start, ask somebody and kind of reach out, whether that's within, like, a running club or having, like, a look online. You know, I, I kind of remember when I kind of first started as well, the, the whole concept of doing, like, a 100-mile race, I just I didn't even entertain it. I thought people who did that were utterly bonkers. Um, but if you're kind of unsure, it is about asking for help asking questions and I don't know I always kind of think if 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 someone asks me for help you know you 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 kind of you want to share your experience or your kind of knowledge and support them and encourage them and yeah I've had some friends who they've got them you know got into triathlon and I'm so inspired by people who you know they might not be able to swim and they've taught themselves in their 30s for example how to swim or they've kind of never ridden a bike and they've got themselves on a bike. And they've started off small. So, you know, within the triathlon world, they might have done like a sprint and then built up to an Olympic. And I've got one friend at the moment who's training for a 70.3. And she just got herself a coach a month ago. And she's finding that, you know, having the structure, having the consistency is just giving her that extra lift in the results that she's seeing. And it's amazing what you can achieve when you kind of put your mind to it. Um, and never be afraid to ask for help. Um, everybody that I've met within kind of the sporting ultra running community particularly is just so friendly and so willing so willing to help I do I do find sometimes within the triathlon world um with the, the whole kind of the bikes and the bling and it can get a little bit more kind of I don't know competitive form of but even you know within the compact in within the triathlon world I'd say the majority of people are just you know super helpful and just want to help you know, that's one of my favorite things about adventure sports. It's the the sense of community that develops when people share a common interest and they go do fun stuff together. Mm. It's just, it's, it's a wonderful excuse to make wonderful friends. Yeah. And the kind of, you know, the sense of achievement. It's like, even for, it was my birthday back in February. And because I've lived abroad for a while, I've not like had a birthday gathering or party or whatever you want to call it. Um, I was kind of back in the country, I was like, I just really want to get some of my friends together. I was like, okay. I was like, oh, there's a duathlon on. Okay. So there's like a racetrack near us, um, the Castle Coombe racetrack. Um, and there's a duathlon, which, you know, it was a short one. It was like a 3K run, 16K bike, 3K run. And I got kind of a group of my friends together, some I've not seen in a while, and some of whom had, you know, never done a duathlon in their life. But, you know, for my birthday celebrations, they were like, oh, well, we knew you weren't going to have like a normal just get together and have a meal or something. <laughs> um, but no, since then, you know, one of the girls, she's like, oh, I've, um, I'm doing a triathlon. You know, I've not done one in eight years. She's just had a just had a baby. And for her, you know, getting back on the bike and 
just it's given us such a lift um, and such a boost, boost of confidence as well. Um, so it is amazing kind of what sport and adventure can do. And you get that kind of confidence, you get that boost. And then actually that ripples across your entire life to, you know, your relationships, to work. Um, and you just kind of start, I don't know, challenging yourself a little bit more. Well, that's wonderful. So tell us a story, if you would, about a time that things did not go right. You can pick the race and the location, but I love to hear how when things went wrong and how they turned out for the best in the end. Um, with this one, I kind of I liken it back to the marathon Saab. I had a day a day then and kind of just sharing a little bit about the marathon de Saab where it's in the Sahara Desert. Um, and I did it two years ago. It's been it was the thirtieth anniversary, um, and it's this crazy race which was invented by Patrick Bauer, who's this French guy who basically took himself off and walked through the Sahara Desert and just found it such an amazing experience. He thought that he had to devise a race to share it with, you know, as many people as possible. And it is, you know, it's grown astronomically. There's, I think there was, what, 16, 1700 people who did it when I did it. Um, and you're basically, it's completely self-sufficient. So you're carrying kind of all your food. Um, there's a kind of a list of medical kit that you have to take with you in safety kit. And you do get provided with a tent at the end of the day, but it's more of a blanket held up by twigs and it's very windy. <laughs> so it tends to collapse and there's just sand everywhere, to be honest. Um, so you, you get rationed water. So it's not that you have to kind of carry your water for the entire seven days. You get like a daily ration um, and then kind of checkpoints along the way as well. And um, you get, you know, you, ha- you like basically have like a token system. So then you kind of found your token in and you get like some water back. Um, and it was on the long day, which was 94 kilometers. The, the route changes every year. Patrick Bauer, he kind of he likes to kind of keep it like a little bit of a surprise. So you're not kind of quite sure what the route is going to be until you arrive and you get the, the road map. Um and it, it's it's normally held within kind of the same area, but the, you know the distances um, change every year, and the, the exact route changes every year as well. So I think ours was it was the longest long day that they ever had, and I, I basically ran out of water in between one of the checkpoints, and you know it's forty degrees heat, and I knew I had another couple of k to go, and. I, I do drink kind of quite a lot of water, just the way that my body kind of processes and keep, hydrates itself. And it was just one of those. We I remember going up this um, kind of really kind of small valley, and it was just relentless. There was no wind at all. The sun was absolutely beating down. And you know when you feel your mouth just getting more and more and more parched. And I was just like, I don't know if I'm going to make it. And it's kind of if you if you kind of you run out of water, or you ask like another competitor for help. It's kind of completely, you know, you get penalty points and the like. And I was just like, mm. no, just keep going, just keep going, just keep going. And it, it was, it it, it, it kind of comes to play that actually mentally, how strong are you? Um, it's a lot of time you kind of talk yourself in or out of anything. And it's just having that kind of focused determination. Okay, no, one foot in front of the other, you can make it. And, you know, I had my map out, I was studying the distances, I was calculating how long it was going to take me to get there. Um, and I remember kind of coming down this massive big sand dune and I could see the checkpoint. It was about, it was about a couple of K away. And I was like, no, I can, I can, I can get there, I can get there. Okay, right, let's keep going, keep going, keep going. But, it, you know, it, it is, it's kind of, 
in, in these races, you know, you put yourselves in these kind of quite kind of stressful situations. You know, you're putting a lot of stress on your body by racing. Um, and, you know, by that day, it was day four. So I'd been racing, you know, three, three other days. And yes, you kind of have a little bit of time overnight to recover. But, you know, you're sleeping in this, well, blankets tent and you're not kind of consuming enough calories to replace what you're losing so you're you know you can in a way your body is it's kind of it's degrading um but yeah no, I, I reached that um checkpoint and the water did taste like liquid gold it was um very very refreshing and the water bottles got topped up massively and water tipped over my head um and then yeah I set off again but that within like a racing context that was where I kind of miscalculated um and you know normally when I'm racing I'm very very detailed with nutrition with you know with within the marathon disorder as well it's your salt intake as well you need to make sure that you're kind of taking salt tablets um and food wise as well so i do particularly if i'm doing like the longer races because i kind of i do try to focus because if you kind of drift off then your energy can dip and then getting yourself out of that um that can be kind of make or break particularly you know there's certain races that i focus on like as an a race um and you know i want to be doing my best um so you don't want anything like that to kind of trip you up so to speak because it you know it can cost you wow there's so much to this and you know we could do a complete show on any one of your events i'm sure and maybe we should maybe we should get you back on and just <laughs> drill down to just one but i love this overview and the lifestyle that you've described for us it's really brilliant really really neat The 180 Flame is the ideal alternative to bulky and fragile gas-burning camp stoves. The 180 Flame utilizes fewer parts with minimal weight and maximized reliability. The locking tab and slot design means there are no hinges, welds, or rivets to fill you in the field. Cook your food and boil water quickly using only small amounts of natural fuels including twigs, grass, pine cones, and leaves. Weighing just 6.4 ounces, the 180 Flame is the ideal alternative to a backpacking stove. You can find your new flame at 180tac.com or a retailer near you. 180 Flame. Think big, pack small. Hey friends, don't miss out on the family fun that is the Boundary Waters Canoe Area Wilderness this summer. Paragus Northwoods Company, located at the edge of the wilderness in Ely, Minnesota, is a leading supplier of fun for families and friends in the Boundary Waters Wilderness. Paragus supplies the canoes and the camping gear that makes a wilderness adventure so easy and so enjoyable. Find them online at paragus.com, that's P-I-R-A-G-I-S.com, or pick up the phone and talk to their outfitting department at So tell us a little bit about your coaching business. So my coaching business, um, Reach for More, um, is all about performance coaching. Um, so I very much work with kind of individual clients and organizations as well, ultimately to support the performance of their individuals so they kind of you know can unlock and unleash their true potential. Um, 
and my clients, they kind of, they have like a range of areas that I support them in. Um, I've got a couple of themes at the moment, one of which is kind of around leadership. Um, so I've got a kind of a few individuals who they've, they've very much been put into like leadership positions and it's exploring ideas around leadership. You know, who is the authentic leader within? How are they going to manage their teams? Um, so that's kind of one side. Then the other is people going through kind of like a transition of some sort, be that moving, be that career wise or be that, you know, they may be in a job and they just kind of it's they, they they kind of in the past they really really wanted this job or they really really wanted this position and now that they're kind of there they're a bit like oh is that it mm, actually maybe this isn't the right fit okay so what do I want um and then I kind of work with clients like that to kind of basically forage your way forwards um so the linking kind of to my sports side of things um I mean I do have some clients I work with who kind of come to me from a sports basis and it's how to support them with strategies kind of mindset wise like the mental side of things because ultimately you know when you're racing it's it's often it's the mental side of things that kind of puts a bit of a halt or puts a bit of a a stepping stone kind of like block in the way so it's kind of working with different kind of race strategies different visualization different goals sometimes it's just an element of kind of an accountability so you know, sometimes I attract clients because they they kind of get the fact that I'm racing in these ultra races and these triathlons, and they do as well. So there's there is that kind of synergy there. But then other times I have clients who they just kind of they just don't even know. It's just not even part of the picture, which you know is absolutely fine because ultimately when I'm working with a client, it's all about how can I support them, and um, it's not about me. That's not the whole point of the kind of the coaching process. So it's a, how can I use my experience? How can I use my skills ultimately to support them to achieve what they want? And if they don't know what it is, then okay, so how can we figure it out together? Right. And so that's Reach for More. And yes. the website is RFM, as in Mary, right, for more, rfmcoaching.com. Yep, that's right. Yes. So if people want to learn more about your coaching, is that the best way to get in touch with you to go through the website? Yes, so um, I'm, there's, there's the website, um, or just drop me an email, uh, which is Anna at rfmcoaching.com. Um, I'm also quite active on Twitter, um, so I'm just kind of there sharing elements of my life, and it's kind of a two-prong, there's, there's stuff about coaching, um, but there's also stuff about kind of what training I'm doing, what events have I got coming up, and sometimes just kind of touching on um, nutrition as well, and there's often the odd kind of coffee um decent coffee shop thrown in there as well can't beat a decent cup of coffee it has to be said and dark, and, and dark chocolate as well I've got a little bit of a, a, a passion for dark chocolate um so it, it just kind of you know it's just it's just kind of a little bit of a flavor of my life um and kind of there yeah, the latest travels as well but that's you know this is how I've kind of created my life um it's there's a lot of work that goes on behind the scenes, don't get me wrong. Um, you know, the training, the amount of time that it takes, but then also running a business as well. Um, I think if I knew how much work a business encompassed um, and actually everything that kind of goes on behind the coaching, just as any business owner will know, it, you know, it's it's not a nine to five. And I wouldn't want to have a nine to five. I don't, the whole thought of having a nine to five job just fills me kind of it makes me shiver. Um but, you know, there, there will be some nights where I'm kind of sat going through my accounts and it's eight o'clock at night. And I'm just like, what, what, what are you doing? <laughs> um, 
but then you know I'll have been out for a run during the day or something so it's it's about a balance but to me you know how how do you want to construct your life and you know I love what I do oh that's neat let's talk a little bit about your walking and talking I saw that on your mm. site and I thought well that's a that's a kind of novel approach so what is walking and talking so walking and talking is rather than having coaching sessions in some coffee shop or kind of loitering in a hotel lobby or in someone's office which is just the worst place um it's about getting outside um and I don't know it for me it just seems like a really obvious concept um I just you know I love being outdoors I remember being sat in school looking out the window waiting for the bell to ring so I could get outdoors it's kind of like it's my natural habitat and actually there's a lot of people out there as well who enjoy being outside and as human beings in the 21st century we spend so much time inside and if you look at the statistics of the amount of time people spend sat down or sleeping you know sometimes between those two it's up to 20 hours a day maybe more um so was it like sitting is the new smoking so Mm. it's kind of that part of the bigger holistic well-being approach it's like look it's coaching it's got all the the usual aspects of performance coaching but rather than kind of being sat having a conversation it's about getting outside and actually I find that once you get outside with a client it's a lot easier to kind of build rapport you kind of slip into a really kind of natural pace walking alongside somebody is very different from having a conversation like opposite or sat next to each other and you've also kind of got that that movement you know the blood is starting to move around the body the brain just starts that mental inertness and it's kind of picking up on the surroundings as well and actually just kind of having inspiration from and you're walking through greenery it just it just lifts you and you can go into the whole kind of neuroscience behind it as well but just you know just from experience I've seen that the, the, the kind of the changes and the outcomes that my clients get it just seems to happen. It just facilitates the coaching so much more. I, you know, for example, yesterday I was in um, I was in London, and I have kind of a, a few routes that I kind of know along the River Thames, for example. So I'll meet a client um, from their office, and then we'll just head out for a walk for an hour. So rather than someone being kind of sat at their desk for twelve hours, and there's no way that you can maintain your performance and be productive at work for you know, 12 hours behind a screen. It just doesn't happen. So if I meet a client for a session at work, for example, during lunch, and then they'll go back to the office afterwards, yes, we've had our coaching conversation and they've got a lot out of that and, you know, areas to work on moving forwards, but also they'll go back refreshed having been outside to kind of be a lot more productive in the afternoon. So it's kind of like a, it's a double, triple, quadruple win-win situation. Um, Yeah. I, I love the approach. I have utilized that myself when I have a, a conversation that I need to have with somebody. I think it's so much more effective to be walking together. It kind of joins your um, joins your psyche in a, in a parallel way instead of facing each other, right? Especially if it's a difficult conversation. There's something wonderful about just being able to take a stroll that opens yeah. up that communication. So I thought that was a very novel approach. I love that, that you have incorporated that into your coaching. Very, very neat. I know. And I, I'm a member of the, um, the International Coach Federation, which is the, um, the largest professional coaching association in the world. And last year I wrote an article for them about um, walking and talking coaching. Because even within the coaching sphere, 
there are a few coaches that walk and talk, but not many. So in a way, this is, it's kind of like a two prong challenge here. Like for your listeners, you know, at work, you know, get outside at lunchtime and step away from the screen. Um, because people don't even have lunch times anymore. It just kind of all gets sucked up kind of thing. So if you're just in a normal desk job, get outside. And then if there are any other coaches who are listening to this by chance, try walking and talking with your clients. Maybe test it out on a friend or something first because it is a little bit different. There are some of the kind of the skills and um, other side of things that you kind of want to work through. But I'm very much very passionate about actually let's get outside and just kind of getting back to nature rather than shutting ourselves off and spending far too much time in front of screens. Oh, yeah, absolutely. So, Anna, believe it or not, we have already burned through our time. But if you would just share with us to close things out here, something that would inspire the person who's like, oh, this sounds wonderful, but I don't even know where to start. I've been so sedentary for so long. I know I need to change that. Um, inspire us. Where do where do we go? Where do we start? <laughs> where do you start? You start. Okay. So it's it's by having a look and going. Okay. Have I got a pair of trainers or kind of something that will support my feet and get outside? And it's about digging them out, dusting them off. Um, if you haven't got a pair. Maybe invest in a pair, but don't like go and buy a massive, expensive, fungal, technical kind of side of things. And then just get outside, open the front door and take a step. And if you've kind of been doing that default setting, you know, driving around the corner to work or dropping the kids off at school and it's like so close, maybe kind of walk there or scooter there or bike there or just do something different, which is active rather than kind of coming home and slumping in front of the TV, maybe arrange to meet a friend and go for a walk. Um, So kind of just do it step by step. And don't just do it once, do it twice. It's that consistency and build it into a habit, uh, which does take time. And there will be days when you really just want to curl up on the sofa and do nothing. But kind of have those trainers in an obvious place. So they're kind of there winking at you um, and you can't ignore them. And don't do it alone. Get a friend. And if you haven't got anyone who's interested, you know, drag a friend along or don't go and find a group. Um, And this is, you know, the Internet does come in so handy. There are so many support groups out there um, and so many podcasts like this that, you know, go back and listen to kind of back episodes. Get all the stories that other people have been sharing And then find a group within your local area. There'll be a running club or a cycling club. There will be like-minded people out there. Hunt them out and then start creating your stories. And then you can start sharing your stories and inspiring others as well. So it is very much that ripple effect. I know that I kind of look across my life and some of the absolutely bonkers, crazy races that I've done. But I didn't start that way. It started off doing, you know, the first 10K, the first half marathon, the first marathon. And once you kind of achieve that, I don't know, I got a bit of a buzz from it. And it's amazing what you can do when you put your mind to it. Mm, Good words. And thank you so much for your time today. We really appreciate your sharing your experiences and your coaching and your inspiration. And we wish you all the best with Reach for More and all of your endeavors. Thank you so much for having me, Kat. It's been a real delight. 
and spending time talking to you. Well, it's our pleasure, and we will have to have you back on again. <laughs> Thanks, oh, Anna Marie. I would, I would love that. <laughs> all right. Take care. And for all of our listeners out there, as always, remember, get out there, make it fun, have some fun. Hey, thank you so much for listening in today. Hope you enjoyed the show. Please do tell your friends about the Adventure Sports Podcast. And remember, get out there and have some fun.